As old houses harbour ghosts, so do words. Take museum, which comes down from the Greek, a place to put things that please the muses, a shrine or seat of the old goddesses. Whenever I hear an English voice presenting a radio programme on Irish radio, my first thought is always, hey, what's he doing there? Why couldn't they find an Irish person? And this, in spite of the fact that I am a radio presenter with an English accent working here in Ireland. But the weight of history runs deep, all that baggage, even in those of us raised outside of Ireland. But when this baggage amounts to a prejudice against our very selves, well, that to me sums up the division, the split, the divided identity that's the inheritance of so many of us born and raised in England to Irish parents. You see, with names like Sullivan, O'Connor and O'Shea, we'd be considered Irish by our English neighbours. But with our English accents back in the land of our forefathers, we're the returned Brit or a plastic paddy. Nobody, it seems, wants to claim us. My parents were part of that generation of immigrants who left Ireland in the wake of the Second World War. They'd both grown up on small farms in West Kerry, and they moved to London in 1948, where they ran a boarding house. Leaving family and friends and the steady rhythms of rural life was surely an emotional wrench for all those forced to take the road of immigration. But there must have been a sense of excitement and adventure in it too. There was the chance to build a new independent life because even though food rations were still in place in London and the bombed out ruins of buildings could still be seen, work was plentiful for both men and women. But the new immigrants could be unprepared for some of the challenges on the crowded city streets, as my mother remembers. It could be green, you know. There was even a word for it, grey sheens. You, you see, most of us were coming from country places, but nobody used to lock their door even at night. And they trusted everybody. For instance, we had a lodger. His name was Jack. And uh, he was just over for six months from Ireland. And he was saving up to go home for Christmas. And he had saved oh, quite a bit, I'm sure, and he went up the high road look, to go to the bank to take out his savings. And he did that, got the money out of the bank and was coming back down the high road and he banged into these two fellows, not knowing they were conmen. And one of them was saying that, oh, he knew our horse that was going to be a sure winner. So one of them was handing money over to the other. And Jack seen all this and he thought, oh... That that might be my chance to put on some money too. And he didn't put on just a little bit. He put on all his savings, hoping that he was going to have extra money for this holiday. They said to him, well, we'll bring the winnings down to you as soon as it comes through. And he believed it all. Came back down and was waiting in the front room, walking up and down. And I happened to go into the front room and seen Jack all worried looking. 
And I said to him, Jack, what's the matter? He told me the story, and of course I thought, oh, no. So I said to him, I'm afraid Jack won't see them again. And he was very upset, naturally. So, of course, it happened. He didn't see him again. Luckily, he had bought his ticket to travel home. So he, he, he that was true. So he was going home anyway. And then we all decided, myself and the four more lads, some from our school and some from other places, that we they all knew him. And he was well-liked in the, in the house. And we gave him a little bit each, and he went off home. And his biggest worry was, for how would he tell his dad that he had no savings? But when he did tell the dad, the dad said to him, well, do you know what, Jack? I think that's the one's best lesson you ever learned. Open your hands to me. They hold nothing. They are calloused, earth under the fingernails. The heart lines strong and sure as any river crazy for the sea. These hands hold nothing. They are the hands of a worker. They are the hands of one who has no job. They have tucked a whole city up at night and in the morning cast it adrift. These hands could pack everything they value in a minute or less. From a burning building, they would save what is living, not what is art. When you stood on the doorstep of our terraced house in Crickerwood, you stood five miles north of Buckingham Palace. But when you entered the house, you could just as easily have been ten miles west of Tralee. Most visitors to the house were Irish. A picture of the Sacred Heart, signed by the parish priest, kept a watchful eye from the kitchen wall. Sister Maureen and Brother Eugene might be reluctantly practising their steps as taught by Ted Kavanagh's School of Irish Dancing. And seven-year-old Brother Michael might be practising scales on an accordion that was almost as big as himself. And on occasions, the record player would pipe out the sugar-coated songs of Bridie Gallagher in case we forgot who we were. I've just stepped in to see you all I lonely stay I was born in 1950 in London, 
but I spoke with an Irish accent until I started school because until then, pretty much all the voices I heard were Irish. As children, we kicked a ball or played tag in the back streets or climbed up on garden fences to look over into the neighbour's backyard, curious to peek into the lives of the nameless strangers who lived close by. And looking back on those years, I tried to put the thoughts of that curious, questioning, slightly puzzled child in the words of a song. Peek through the window, see who's there. An old man sitting in a wooden chair. What's he thinking and why do I care? Is it rude to stare? Is it really rude to stare? Little spider on the garden wall. Did your mommy teach you how to crawl? And do you have any friends at all? I bet that I look tall. Do you think I'm really tall? La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. Every summer we'd head back home, as my parents called it. My mother, sister Maureen, brothers Eugene and Michael, we were heading to Kerry for the whole of the summer school holidays. Our father would follow on later and we'd be staying on our uncle's farm in a Koshla near Castle Gregory, surrounded by aunts and uncles and cousins because we weren't the only visitors to the house. Cousins from all quarters would descend, including Anne McGovern from Fermanagh. It wasn't the luxury coach all the way to the south of Ireland, 300 miles away. I don't even remember packing a bag, but I'm sure there were clothes packed at some stage. Um, we would have all got dressed and piled into the back of the van. It was a big, uh, it was a Ford van. No seating in the back, no seat belts. We just all piled in. We had cushions or rugs maybe um, on the floor of the van. And um, we um, set off early in the morning um, after the milking was done and uh, down the road. <laughs> With all the bumps, there had to, it had to be a very bumpy ride because the roads were very, very bad. Um, and the, the, the Kerry folk used to talk about the good roads up north and uh, we certainly knew what they were talking about. Uh, the roads on the way down were so, so rough and twisted and bendy. And, but I never, ever remember anybody complaining in the back of that van. And we were in there for hours. It might have taken maybe six hours uh, travelling down. But then uh, as you come on down through the Midlands, Athlone, down into Limerick, gosh, when you got to Limerick, you thought you were nearly there. But in actual fact, you weren't. You had um, a, um, a considerable... That was really about just two-thirds of the way. So... Um, you come on down through Limerick and uh, then uh, into, into onto the Kerry border. And once we recognised the signs, you know, Kerry and uh, we recognised the signs for Tralee and whatever, well, the cheer went up. And I'm sure it was deafening. And for us, travelling from London, the journey was even longer. 
when I think of what it was like for my mother and for others like her travelling overnight to Ireland with their families in the 1950s, the trains and the boat, the four of us children pulling out of her all the way and the night boat sailing in the small hours but with nobody interested in sleep. There was always a great sense of excitement and anticipation on the boat, a mood that couldn't be dampened by even the roughest crossing, and there were plenty of those. You see, people would have been waiting for this all year. I remember the boat pulling into Dunleary with everyone gathered up on the decks, bleary-eyed but still shouting and joking, the grey dawn just beginning to break the sharp tang of sea air mixed with the smell of diesel as the boat rocked towards the stout wooden pier, the harbour lights drawing nearer and nearer. And for me, nothing has ever tasted as good as breakfast on the train as we were finally heading down to Kerry after that long night. know how our aunt Kit managed. There were just so many of us. But somehow it didn't seem to be a problem. On one particular night I distinctly remember 22 of us sleeping in a hostler. That would have included my parents and my granny and um, her son and his wife, Auntie Kit, Uncle Jerry and Auntie Kit, and then all the cousins and friends who had uh, arrived home. <laughs> And uh, my uncle, I think, arrived in from Tipperary, my mother's brother, Uncle Jack, and uh, uh, there was no bed, there was no place for him. Uh, it's not that there was beds for everybody, but there might have been half a dozen children in each bed, top and bottom, three in one end and three on the other end. And, uh, you know, people slept on the sofa and on the couch and whatever. And uh, my uncle Jack came in and uh, there was no place for him. So he took the wooden table and turned it upside down and <laughs> slept. Left in the table, um, probably a couple of coats over him. Cousin Patrick was our age, but he wasn't always sure what to make of us. We wouldn't get very much notice. My mum might mention a day or two before to tidy up the place and get her ready. She'd say, the Cricklewoods are coming. And we'd be all excited about it and change of activity around the place and that. And the day would come and you would arrive. And I suppose when we, very early ages, we'd be trying to figure out who you were, and these people that came from this foreign land beyond the sea, you know, and I'd try to figure them out. And I suppose as the fellow, you know, and he was 
telling the story of his own childhood, he would kind of start off like saying, Fado, Fado, once in Shanaim, sure, the number of Amy Og, the Vimey Anna August, the Breach de Gar on them, the Breach de Gar being the short trousers. And that time, well, there was an unwritten rule, certainly here in West Kerry if, and in many other parts of Ireland, that you didn't wear a long trousers until you were confirmed. And you'd be told that the bishop would come along and he'd give you a slap across the jaw and he'd make you a strong and perfect Christian. And that entitled you to wear a man's trousers and then you could wear a long trousers. And it was fully accepted. And this went back, I suppose, to my dad and his dad and his dad before him. And we grew up with it and we never questioned it. But along the cousins came anyway from Cricklewood and they were wearing these funny kind of trousers. They were long blue trousers with very distinctive different coloured treads and then on the pockets of them and that and maybe a bit of leather stitched onto the back pocket called jeans and we'd never heard or seen of these before and we wondered, you know, what these people that were wearing them and we thought, you know, England must surely be a pagan country where young lads are allowed to wear long trousers they're not even confirmed yet. Cousin Patrick was naturally curious about our lives. We would compare you and your way of life to ours, and you know, and what was life like in London, and how much it was different than it was from here in Arkashla. And um, on this farm here in Arkashla, anybody who lived in the farm had to work on the farm, and you only know that too well yourself from coming on holidays here, and you were giving the pike out making hair, doing turf or weed or anything like that. And I remember sitting down one day and I was talking to your sister tomorrow about it and wondering, you know, what did you do in England? And did you have the life of Riley that you didn't have to look after it and do all this work in the evening after school or holidays and so on and so forth? And I wondered, you know, was it a good thing or was it a bad thing? You know, I'd I'd love to have a few days off and do nothing myself, but I thought it would get boring after a while or what it would be like. And I wasn't sure. And we were talking about, you know, life what I was doing on the farm and I was putting this pointer you know that he's a great and I asked her did you have any animals and she says yes we have a cat and I thought a what and she said a cat now to me a cat wasn't an animal I don't know what it was it's probably just a cat I mean an animal was a cow or a heifer or a calf or a bullock or a horse or a pony or a donkey or something like that but the cat didn't justify being called an animal anyway and I kind of sarcastically and I said and who looks after this cat and she said she did, and I wondered, you know, should she have a wheelbarrow and a four-pronged bike to clean out from the cat, you know, and bed it and do all the kind of work we were doing? And I asked, you know, would you tell me what was involved in looking after this cat? I mean, and she said yes, that she had to look after the cat and that she'd go to the shop and that she'd go shopping for the cat. Well, by God, this, I couldn't understand it at all. So I'm going shopping for a cat? I mean, a cat came into the house and he was hunted out the door. And the cat, like everybody else in the farm, had to work for his keep. There was vermin, and it was his job to go out and catch them. And while the cat would be fed a little, he certainly wouldn't be overfed because he had a job to do and he had to do it. But the thoughts of somebody going to the shop for a cat was far beyond it. Maureen remembers that conversation too. I can remember telling Patrick about how we had this cat in London and the food we would get from it would be from the shop in a tin called uh, Whiskers, purple it was, with a big picture of a cat on the front. And uh, his eyes popped right out of his head and he threw his head back laughing. He couldn't believe that such a thing existed, that you actually went into the shop and paid good money for a tin of food that was just for the cat, no one else. And I think it brought it home to me, the difference between London and Akoshla. 
between Cricklewood and Akoshla and the way of life. There was something about when he burst out laughing about the cat food that it brought it home to me that the, the huge difference in the way of living, that this cat in London was a pet and all he had to do was meow for his food. <laughs> However, not everything we learned in Ireland translated easily back into our London lives, as my brother Michael discovered at school. I'd say we were nine years old and the teacher was doing this vocabulary building thing like, do you know what we call a young sheep? The answer was lamb, of course. It was like, he presented it like a game show. You'd put up your hand and you'd get a point if you had the... Right answer. So, do you know what we call a young cow? And a lad put up his hand and he got it, you know, calf. Then, do you know what we call a young horse? And I think um, someone got the answer wrong. They said pony instead of foal. And then he came to one. Do you know what we call a young pig? So, my hand went up like a shot. I was pleased because I knew I had the right answer. And I was first. And he said, OK, O'Shea, what is it? And I said, a bonov. And he said, a what? And I said, a bonov. And he said, uh, where did you hear that word? And so, of course, I explained that on many occasions I've been with my mum and dad visiting their brothers and sisters on various farms in West Kerry. And in, on, on more than one occasion, um, there'd be a sow there with a load of bonnivs, you know. And so I'd heard the word and I'd seen them. And so it didn't occur to me that this might not be the word used in England. And the teacher said to me... Um, where did you hear that? And I explained and he said, well, with a smile, he said, I'll take your word for it, but um, I can't give you a point for that, which, as you can imagine, I was very disappointed by. And I've always felt that the word piglet is a bit of a mediocre word because it's not like foal or lamb or calf, a word in its own right, but just a sort of made-up word. It was a great sense of freedom in Ireland for us city kids. We'd kick off our shoes and run off to the fields or down to the sandy beach that we had all to ourselves. And at that time, there was no running water on the farms, no television. In Cousin Patrick's house, radio was only a recent acquisition. And he didn't entirely trust it at first. I suppose one of the things that time too was, you know, and here in Kerry with football being what it was and what it still is uh, to us and uh, a crowd of people would come into the house the day of an All-Ireland final and that and sit around and listen to the radio and and that and I remember being there as a young child and I listened very attentively to the radio and if I remember Kerry were playing Galway in an All-Ireland final and um, We'd won the match and there was great excitement and I was really delighted that Kerry had won. But I wanted to make absolutely sure. So up I got out the door and ran down the Boraheen and over to Patsy Connor and ran in the door, jaded, inquiring off of Patsy to know who won on his radio. <laughs> but if Kerry won on our radio and he won on his radio, then there was a fair chance they did really win it. <laughs> but we didn't miss the amenities of home. Without knowing it, we'd been freed from the tyranny of television. Always outside. We were only a five-minute race uh, to the strand. We didn't call it the beach, we called it the strand. And once you went down the Boreen, down onto the what we call the low road, you crossed over the low road and that was, uh, you were on the banks. Uh, you were there 
And, um, of course, on our way to the Strand, we'd have been shouting and playing and kehoan, and uh, the neighbours all came out. Um, Jewel, I think of Jewel, um, she'd come out and she said, oh, you must be Nell Shea's daughter. Of course, they recognised the Fermanagh accent. And uh, we were brought in and, oh, given, you know, drinks and sweets and... Everybody owned us. The neighbours all owned us. The neighbours were also free to give us a clip behind the ear without any comeback if they felt the occasion warranted. And, of course, it wasn't always peace and light between the cousins. There could be rows and jealousies, too. But Anne's life in Fermanagh was very different to ours. At the time, I don't think we realised just how different. Simple, everyday things in the South would surprise her. For example, her daily experience of the RUC and the B-specials at home was not a happy one. And she was very surprised to see the easy-going relationship everyone seemed to have with the local police around Castle Gregory. I think the one um, memory I have, very, very distinct memory, is how the um, everybody chatting the guards, including my parents, and uh, they seemed to be very much part of the community and um, on first name terms. And uh, that I, I found um, in, in such a contrast to at home in Fermanagh, because once you saw the police on the road, well, you know, you're hyperventilating, wondering what are they going to stop us for now? Are we going to be searched? Um, um, you know, what, what, what's the problem? You always anticipated trouble. Um, maybe that was just exaggerated in my mind as a child. Um, but it was just a totally different relationship altogether. Um, you know, you were, your lips were sealed. If you're asked any questions, you're almost reluctant to, to uh, give your name. You see, you bear in mind, in the, in the 50s, um, there was a lot of trouble in the north. And um, uh, I will always remember the night that uh, Sean South was shot in Brookborough and uh, Fergal O'Hanlon, and, um, you know, at night, um, we didn't have electricity that time, but the lamp was lit, the tilly lamps were lit, and uh, you brought them to the room. But, um, the, the you know, the windows had to be blackened out, the curtains had to be closed, um, no, visib no light visible on the outside, um, everything in darkness. And uh, the night of the raid in Brookborough, um, we could clearly, it was a very quiet night. Obviously, the wind was blowing our direction. You could hear the shooting. It was all very brief, but it was such a burst of, of fire. We were all expected to help out on the farm. In fine weather, there were long days spent saving hay or stacking turf. And, rain or shine, the children would bring in the cattle for milking and take them back to the fields 
twice a day, every day. And, of course, at home in London, there was much more time for leisure. I remember one family outing in particular. It was a Sunday afternoon, and we'd gone to the bus station in Golders Green without any real plans. I spied a bus with a sign for Hampton Court and suggested we try that, with only the vaguest idea of where and what Hampton Court was. And the bus ride was interminable. It seemed to go on forever, right across London and out the other side. But when we got to Hampton Court, what an adventure, a real castle, like the pictures I'd seen in fairy tale books. And what really impressed me was that we got there simply by jumping on a bus. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. Oak and ash and holly tree. Black-eyed Susan, black-eyed Pea. Someone somewhere told a secret to me. I'll keep it just, you see. I'll keep it just, you wait and see. Sunday morning and we run down the stairs. Let's catch a bus to who knows where. Maybe Hampton Court or Leicester Square. Just to see what's there. Just to look and see what's there. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. La 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 la. That trip to Hampton Court stays with me. It was a magical day. The orangery, the gardens and the maze, the glittering waters of the slow-moving Thames close by and the coloured boats moving up and down, flags flying, crowded with people. It seemed like all the world was on holiday and I was beginning to have a sense of what London had to offer. And then the 1960s blew in. By the mid-sixties, I was swept along like so many of my generation on the tide of social change that was reaching into all areas of life and the new dynamic music and fashions that seemed to embody the mood of the times. I became obsessed with that music as only a teenager can. The Beatles and the Stones, of course, but there were countless groups gigging around town. And for anyone interested in that scene, London felt like the absolute centre of the world. But we still loved coming to Ireland, where the dance hall in Castle Gregory had a corrugated roof that made such a racket during a heavy shower of rain, it could drown out the band. Um, my first experience of a dance as such would have been, uh, now we weren't very old, we'd have been early teens, and uh, going back to Castle Gregory uh, to the hop in a very old, sort of dilapidated, um, wagon-roofed um, hall, corrugated iron, and um, a very shabby door. And uh, even even inside, I remember the walls, um, that smell of dampness. And you could see the traces of dampness on the wall, I suppose, because the, the paint was flaking. 
and uh, the floor was well and truly worn, uh, wooden floor, and um, it wouldn't have been your choice of uh, venue, maybe, uh, if if appearances mattered, but uh, we didn't really, didn't care because we had our cousins with us and we were looking forward to meeting the neighbours and seeing the talent and um, just having a great night's crack. It didn't matter where it was, whether it was in a hall or on the crossroads or whatever. Of course, we'd have spent uh, half the evening getting ready, you know, getting the hair done and uh, getting the rollers in the hair and... Um, I'd have put in the rollers for my cousin and she'd have put in the rollers in my hair and sprayed until it wouldn't move. It wasn't hairspray, it was lacquer. And lacquer just left your hair so solid. And, um, you know, getting picking out this dress, there was no problem picking a dress because you probably only had one, but um, it was ironed and um, uh, um, getting a bit of makeup on. Uh, what was that? Lipstick and powder, literally. Um, and the lipstick was used as rouge. Uh, I don't remember any mascara or eyeshadow or anything like that. Uh, when, when you walked into the hall, you had the boys on one side and the girls usually on the right-hand side. And um, there, was, there was no alcohol. It was, um, there was a mineral bar and uh, they would have also sold crisps as well. So um, if there was a fella who really fancied you, he'd say, would you like a mineral? And for those of us who were interested, there was a vibrant, growing, traditional music scene in London. In fact, I reckon in this period, it was easier to find a good Irish session in London than in many places in Ireland. Maggie Barry, Bobby Casey and Tony McMahon were just a few of the artists that could be heard in full flight in venues like the Bedford Arms in Camden, the White Hart in Fulham and the Favourite in Holloway. I especially liked the old slow airs and even tried putting my own words to some of them. As he went out on Good Friday from Gregory's castle to Rome He spied a maiden Kneel and pray By the blue waves and the foam He stood a while To view the scene The maid alone on the strand Then he approached this radiant queen across the soft yellow sand he had never seen before a sea so deep and wide he heard the waves like a warrior's roar and the vast silence inside
fans of the GAA in London during the 1950s and 60s and even into the 70s. There was no way of receiving Irish television and so no way of watching your county play live. You couldn't even get a good reception for Irish radio. But there was a kind of solution. It was just about possible to rig up a system whereby you could listen on long-wave radio. It involved stacking as many portable radios as could be found around the base of the telegraph poles that lined the streets. The pole acted as an aerial, and it was a common sight on Sunday afternoons in the summer to see a large crowd of people huddled around a telegraph pole in one of the back streets, heads bowed, listening intently to the distant crackled voice of Mehol O'Hare coming through the ether. My brother Eugene remembers one such match at Dublin Kerry semi-final. It was close, close, close. Just one point between the two teams and only a couple of minutes to go. So tension was high around the telegraph pole in Glengore Road, just off the Kilburn High Road. There was about 30 of us. We, we were on a street corner, residential area. We weren't causing any great obstruction. Nevertheless, a young policeman came along and felt that technically we were breaking the law and that we needed to be moved on. So all on his own, he came up to us and he, he uh, started chatting away and saying, well, no, you'll have to move away from here. And I was thinking, well, there's a lot long left in this game. Like, uh, I don't think anybody really wants to leave here right now. What's going to happen next? Well, nothing happened next because just nobody responded. It was an amazing thing to, to observe, uh, this irate policeman and this group of people who were just totally ignoring him. He tried two or three times to asking us, telling us to, to move along. No response. Not a word from anybody. It's the same thing as if the man wasn't there. He was a young policeman, not much experience, I'd imagine, straight out of college, probably. And uh, so he got on his walkie-talkie, and a couple of minutes later, along comes the squad car. And the squad car had a couple of much older policemen in the front of it. They'd been round the block a few times. 
So they took a look at us. They had a fair idea what we were up to. And uh, they had a look at the young cop as well. Then one of them leaned over out the window of the car and he said, Hey, lads, is there long left in the match? Somebody put three fingers up to indicate three minutes. And he said, OK. And uh, he indicated to the young cop to sit into the back. And the police took four minutes to drive around the block. We took three minutes to listen to the end of the game, which Gary lost. We walked away disappointed, and by the time the cops came back, there wasn't a single soul on that corner. And as the 1960s moved into the 70s, those of us in London had to ask ourselves some serious questions. The whole sort of Irish-English thing, or, or, or coming to understand your own identity, um, when I was younger, that it was a much more immediate familial thing that you're trying to sort out which side of the Irish Sea are you from and uh, and what how English are you or how Irish are you. That uh, But that's a family thing. When you're older, of course, um, you become more aware of bigger issues, wider issues uh, uh, of identity. And, of course, the, I'm, I'm thinking of the, the mid-70s when um, the Northern Ireland conflict was probably at its worst in a lot, of, a lot of respects. You're talking about the period when the Birmingham bombings took place, when the IRA campaign was moved to Great Britain and the car bombing that was common in the north prior to that was now becoming common in London and the impact that that had on people like me you know, London Irish who are trying to figure out, you know, which side are we on? Are we supposed to be on a, on a side or, or are we supposed to be a bridge between the two sides? Um, very difficult to, to, to properly uh, figure it out. Now, at that time, I, I was living in Kilburn and certainly um, to, to pass between Hollyhead and Dunleary generally involved being cross-examined by by the police and having to explain your movements similarly uh, walking along the high road at the, at the wrong time of night could could lead to a cross-examination so it it was a difficult time and, and it it did force me and us and others I'm sure into you know asking yourself well, where do you fit into this whole story of my Irish roots and I feel connected to Ireland in a real way. I grew up listening to stories and songs from Ireland every bit as much as my cousins in Kerry and I'm sure my Irish background has influenced the way I view the world. I feel at home under the changing Irish skies and I miss them when I'm away. But the question of identity remains an elusive one. If pushed, I could describe myself as London Irish. But can these sort of labels fully answer the question, who am I? Can they help us to feel at home in ourselves, comfortable in our own skins? Or can they help give the deepest meaning to our lives?
the sheets on the lines to catch a spring wind. The children dream of schooners under a cloud of sail and the ghosts are packing up their satchels. They know it's time to leave with the tide of history ebbing through the house. Go you too, mortal, your fated road. May fixed stars guide you until you reach safe harbour, a place you can call home. came to Kerry as children, the country was on the cusp of change, and perhaps it always is, but I'm very glad that our parents were able to give us a glimpse of the unautomated island and the old ways of life that they knew before it all disappeared. Just a song, a pretty melody, simple and strong. With words that speak to me From a world that used to be It's just a song from long ago A smiling face In an old photo An open space Where the children go The streets that we walked upon it's just a song from long ago On someone's radio La 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 